You're listening to Ritual, a podcast for curious humans, all about creative practices, mindset, and professional improvement. I'm your host, Daniel Lamb, CEO of Holland Creative. Today on the Ritual Podcast, we're going to hear from Asia Arnold. Asia is the founding editor of the Mainline magazine based in Atlanta, Georgia. She received her bachelor's in journalism from Georgia State along with studies in sociology. She's currently running the magazine focusing on hyper-local issues in the city of Atlanta along with working on her book, Land of the Let Go. I've known Asia for a long time and it was really great having her on the on the show and really just a really great conversation about what it means to be a part of the new wave of journalism. Hey Asia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's nice to be on this side of the podcast every once in a while. Indeed. It's a different <laughs> feel, right, to be a guest than to be a host. Yeah. Yeah. We just nerded out for like 20 minutes about hosting podcasts. <laughs> yeah. All the technology and editing that goes into it. It's a, it's a lot. So let's not get down that rabbit hole. I'm really excited to talk to you about local journalism, about your magazine, the Mainline. But before that, I need to ask you my number one question. What is your ritual? What is my ritual? So I mean, my ritual is very non-rituals. I'm kind of embracing this being ever adaptable and flexible and things are constantly changing. But I would have to say that my ritual is finding anything that I possibly can to kind of be comfortable with that, if that makes sense. (laughs) Especially after 2020, which brought a lot of change really fast and all the time. So I would say the only thing that has really stayed a staple that I do every day is meditating at least for five minutes, which sounds a little like, oh, I meditate, but it's really informal. It's just something to keep me like recentered when I need to. And then whatever else I can do to keep going in local journalism. It's a lot of work. Yeah, 100%. And and I'm glad that you mentioned meditation. I've definitely been interested in it for a long time. And I've had more formal practices and very informal practices. And I think it's just one of those things that doing it more consistently, regardless of what the practice is, the consistency is almost more important, I think, than the, the structure of the session. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've had my relationship with meditation has changed over the years, over the past several years, but I hit a little bit of a rut where I just wasn't really feeling connected. And I actually was introduced to a new app called 10% Happier, which I love. It was started by a journalist from ABC. I don't know if you remember. Dan Harris. Yeah. Dan Harris. Yeah. He had like, for those who don't know, he had a panic attack on live television on Good Morning America in 2004. And that led him to, there's also like some substance abuse related to that anxiety attack that he had, but he started this meditation app that has a good following, but I really love that approach. Someone from the industry started that. So that's what I've been doing now. And it's been cool. I'll have to check out Dan's app. I, I read his book, 10% Happier, and I loved it. I thought it was a good book. He definitely talks about like sobering up and anxiety and meditation and how he had like this just really shitty attitude about meditation at first, but he like kept showing up and just kept like plugging along. And I think he was part of that New York school of Buddhists and stuff. Anyway, great stuff. 
So as we've already mentioned, you're a journalist and you run a news outlet called The Mainline. I remember grabbing coffee with you and just talking about this before before it was a real thing, before it was, well, before it was launched, it was already a real thing. And you were planning this out. And so it's really cool to see how you've manifested such an impactful source of information for people. So for the people who are listening here, can you talk a little bit about the main line and what you do over there, what you're covering? The main line is an independent local news outlet based in Atlanta, and we cover Atlanta local news. It's evolved. I originally started it. I was a music writer at Creative Loafing Atlanta for almost a full year. It was around the time Creative Loafing started to go downhill, more or less. Uh, they did a bunch of layoffs that same year that I was there. I was freelance, so I wasn't affected by that. But it became apparent that Elena needed something, or at least I wanted something. But the more I talked to people about it, they were also ready for something new. So we still cover music. That was a big focus for sure. And it still is. But then we launched in 2019 after Governor Brian Kemp passed the heartbeat bill. There's just myself and a few other women had some shit to say about that. And I have always wanted to work somewhere where I wouldn't be censored or edited, where I could be quote unquote political and have, you know, my political opinion in a safe space. We really talked about abortion the way that I think it should be discussed when we're considering it in the context of the South. And then 2020 came along and we had COVID and then the uprising. So we, I just snapped into gear with my background in sociology as well as journalism. It made me, I think, uniquely prepared to discuss the uprisings in the context that I think that they should be covered, which is in line with what is called media reparations, which the industry is embracing a little bit more after the Capitol riots that we saw in January. This year, where the main line is focusing on city council because we just had the huge election cycle last year, but it's not quite over for Atlanta or Georgia. We have the city council races coming up for all 15 council seats, as well as the mayor's office is up and the board of education and municipal judges. You know, I'm a big believer that most politics is local. So that's where a lot of our political attention should go, covering the city's response to the uprisings. I can personally attest that the city council and mayor's office need a lot of work and progressives need to enter office at this time. So we're here to support that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you bring up the, the insurrection and sort of everything that's happened throughout really the last four and a half years or so, because that really brings up this problem of really journalistic integrity, disinformation and misinformation. And quite frankly, I think we can, most of us could agree at least that it's a big problem. And without going into a, a long screed about yellow journalism or new yellow journalism or whatever that is, like what can folks, you know, average people do to be better informed and deal with misinformation, actual fake news and how do how do we like engage in conversations with people who've been misinformed and what do we do with that because i've struggled with that like how do you speak to somebody who's for lack of a better word been brainwashed by rhetoric yeah i mean that's a pretty like there's a lot to unpack with that question I'll try and keep it as concise as I can but i think the truth is we've all been brainwashed to some degree in american society and like mainstream news. The history of American media systems is, to put it simply, you know, our 
media systems were built and established to uphold a white power structure. And we're still suffering those consequences today. It's why the Capitol riots, which was the most explosive and literal example of white supremacy, most major news outlets couldn't even identify what was happening and they don't know how to talk about it. So when we talk about media reparations, we're talking about course correcting coverage that's been happening since, you know, the 1800s and the beginning of news in America. We need to start talking about like police brutality in the correct way and things like that. But to answer your question about how to confront this issue of mis and disinformation. I mean, what was so apparent to me, what I internalized after the Capitol riots is that mis and disinformation is really a matter of life and death because news and the way that we cover things will influence public opinion, which leads to votes, which leads to policy, which makes a difference between life and death for people, especially in the South. And we saw that with the coronavirus, especially in rural counties in Georgia last year. I mean, for one, one thing that the average person can do is that even if you see something online that is false information, you know, don't retweet it, don't spread it, even if you're debunking it in your quote tweet or like whatever it might be. Because we live in such a fast paced society that people are going to see it anyway, and you can't unring the bell. So even if you know, advice from experts is to not engage with mis or disinformation at all, check your sources that you're reading and consider the bias. Like I hate to break it to anyone, but there's no such thing as objectivity in news. It's a construct that was created to uphold a white male gaze in our news systems. And anyone that challenged that, we would be told you're not being objective. There's no such thing as a lack of bias in the news. CNN, MSNBC, and Fox all have corporate interests. So that's something to consider. Same with New York Times, New Yorker, etc. Which is fine because we've all become dependent on them. But the experts will continuously say, like, I listen and read the Columbia Journalism Review rather religiously, because they're my most trusted news source. They put everything into great context. But experts that talk about the last four and a half years and what needs to do next, the bottom line always comes down to we need to elevate non-corporatized local news sources. So the more that collectively people can come together and support local news, the better because the collapse of local news outlets over the past 10 to 15 years was really a major precipitating factor in the polarization of our country, the spread of mis and disinformation. The most symptomatic example was those capital riots that we saw in January. I, I have to agree 100%. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about about local journalism and how it's fundamentally different than quote unquote the news because you brought up these ideas of corporate interest and the disintegration of like local sources or local broadcasts. So is this like a, would you call it a movement or what is local journalism per se? I wish it was more of like an official movement. I think right now where it's at in industry is that it's a very like journalists in different newsrooms teaming up together and speaking out against the microaggressions and then straight up aggressions that if we saw that at the LA Times last year where journalists of color came up together and spoke out. There's writers guilds that are in support of different publications, but for something like local news, like we don't see that. Now, so the main line really is like my own kind of personally built 
mini movement and that I kind of view, you know, there, there's only so much that one person can do. So for myself, it's what can I do to be resistance to my own internalized capitalism or corporate interests overtaking the news? And it's like, well, I happen to have a platform. I'm not going to accept money from advertisers. Like I'm going to step away from the advertising model and just shut that door completely. So that's why one of the reasons why the mainline is uh, grassroots funded. Like we only operate off grassroots donations from readers. We have donors that donate like $5 a month, one-time contributors, and then people who donate like $50 a month, just like whatever's in people's budgets. So that's one way, but it's not like an official movement, but I think we can expect to see something more like that as more and more journalists get fed up and kind of like come together. And local, for now, it's very decentralized. It's just, we're going to have to go on a media like an awareness and educational campaign, but a group of people in the industry of color, BIPOC folks started a group called Media 2070, which I recommend anyone to check out because they propose a vision in the form of a 100 page essay. They propose a vision for media reparations and what new American media could look like in 2070 over that span of time. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think that you you hit on something else too, that's kind of a weird, tough place to be, which is being independent from things like ad revenue and then getting people to support journalism. I think that one of the blessings and curses of the internet has been access to information. And so a lot of the subscription models for print have died off because of that. What do you think it's going to take to get people to see, maybe, maybe there's no answer to this, but like getting people to change their minds about what's, what's valuable and what's worth paying for. Because like, to your point, like as long as large corporations hold all the cards, then they can afford to give away the news that they control for free. Yeah. I unfortunately I think it's going to be more consequences. The capital riots I think was a direct consequence of where our media is currently at, but the ball got rolling really with the eradication, the repeal of the fairness doctrine in 1989, not to get too nerdy about it, but there's been conversations now in media about potential policies that could be made in government to rectify the problem, but and one of those things is reinstalling that fairness doctrine, which it's too antiquated. It doesn't, it wouldn't work in this day and age with all the sources. It just, not to get too nerdy about it, but it just won't work. The constant, I think, struggle with the mainline's business model being grassroots. And we're not the only publication that does that. We're really following a model like The Intercept and Common Dreams. However, The Intercept, I know for sure, has outside funding. They're owned by a parent company, but they do depend as well on donations for their work. We do not have outside funding at all. So the constant struggle is how do you get being a free publication? We don't have a paywall. It's like, how do you convince someone to pay for something they're already getting for free? And really the new paradigm that we're living in is this is mutual aid journalism. Like everyone's donations goes to paying for our operations. We're still not in a place where we're raising enough money to actually pay labor costs, which is where I really want us to get because we're all working volunteer except for I pay primarily our contributors of color first and then people, other people will waive theirs to just stay with the 
publication, but this is mutual aid journalism in the sense that every donation that we get, whoever's making that donation, it's like you're helping pay for a free resource that is providing coverage and content like no one else is in the city of Atlanta or in the state of Georgia. We have really great regional news outlets that are progressive, but nothing local like we do. A donation to us also pays for, we use our ad space to boost other mutual aid efforts for free because we're not taking ad dollars. We don't that space and keeps us free of corporate interest. But even with the Capitol riots, it's we've seen media, we've just become so dependent on the way things are right now. I think it's going to take more consequences for people to see really how disastrous the situation is, because I think a majority of people still don't get it. Yeah, without going into too much detail, I can definitely agree that there are a lot of people who are blind to misinformation and are quite dependent on those structures to give them a sense of comfort and solidness. So you had also talked about how you were going about supporting the mainline. We were chatting the other day about looking at things like Patreon or some sort of subscription model. Can you talk a little bit about the campaign that you guys are getting ready to do? Or that are already doing? Yeah, so we, I mean, the mainline started with a Kickstarter campaign. That was how we kickstarted the whole operation. However, now what we're pursuing is that grassroots mutual aid journalism model that I just described. So in the sense, it's a 24-7, 365 campaign to try and get people to become donors. We don't have a Patreon page because I wanted to keep it as streamlined as possible. So our donation portal is on our website. So in accordance with what I just described, the new vision of mutual aid journalism and the new wave of independent media. We are aspiring to stay free and independent. And through that, we're committed to depending on donations. Like I am not actively seeking outside funding or advertising in the background while we're asking for money from readers and folks like who might be listening in the city of Atlanta. You know, a lot of journalists over the past four years have left their institutions and gone quote unquote rogue and have become these more like personal career journalists that don't work for any outlet. They publish themselves on medium.com or Substack or on Patreon, which I think is great. But I like the idea of having an outlet that can streamline all these efforts, which is one thing that the mainline is here to do. We publish not just work by myself, but work by other people. And we have everything simplified. And just on our website, you go to mainlinezine.com and look for the donate link. And there you can enter a contribution as little as $1, $2, $3, $5. You can make it monthly. And that is what we're aspiring to do. That is just our donation ask that's open all the time. Very cool. And you mentioned the website. How else can people connect? with you guys online. We're on Instagram. However, we're also, it's not lost on those of us at the mainline that the, that Instagram and social media platforms are also problematic and rooted in white supremacy, not to be a major bummer, but there hasn't been any changes. <laughs> so we are on Instagram. However, I am actively working to have us shift off of 
maybe not completely deactivate, but at least not be as dependent on social media platforms that have led us to our societal demise in local journalism. <laughs> our website, mainlinezine.com, you can find an embed form to subscribe to our newsletter. We also have two podcasts, which are available on Spotify, iTunes, and multiple other platforms wherever you get your podcasts. The Mainline Podcast and To the Left is our spinoff podcast, which is pretty self-explanatory. And you can subscribe to those. Eventually, I hope to have our own independent apps that you could download in an app store, which would link you directly to our podcast and you get push notifications. And in that, I will be providing weekly updates every Monday and hooking you up with other resources as well. Awesome. Well, Asia, thank you so much. This has been super enlightening for me. I feel like I'm ready to go out and try to do some good in the world and be yeah. less, less involved with things that are toxic and cancerous to the world around us. So thanks for being here today. And this has been a really great conversation. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Ritual. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone that you think would love it. Special thanks to our producer, Emily Milling, and her team at The Ultimate Creative and our amazing business manager, Erica McCauley. I recorded the intro music for this podcast with Spencer Garn at Diamond Street Studios here in Atlanta. Until next time, I'm Daniel Lamb. And just remember, everything that you need to be creative is right here with you, within you, in this moment. Mm-hmm.